Hi, welcome to another episode of the Leadership Enigma. We are now hurtling, yes, hurtling towards episode 100. And I'm looking forward to this episode. Now, I've used the phrase before, haven't I, that it's not the big that will eat the small, it's the fast that will eat the slow. So I know I sound like a movie, but I feel the need, the need for speed. And that really is the essence and the focus of this particular episode. And like always, I have someone far wiser than me. You don't want to miss this episode because I'm with Jay Goldman, who's the co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, Harvard Business Review contributor for his book, The Decoded Company. He's a TEDx speaker and he's part of the Forbes Technology Council. There's more stuff as well, but you need to hear from Jay himself to find out all about that. So come back to me just after this. During constant change, your leadership has never been more important to create a better and more inclusive world. You're listening to The Leadership Enigma, a podcast for the insatiably curious to explore the power of human-centered leadership to create real momentum for positive and sustainable change. Whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts, and disruptors as we discover that success leaves clues. Now, here's your host, Adam Pacifico. I always chuckle slightly as I listen to that introduction, but it's a huge warm welcome to you, Jay Goldman. Welcome to the Leadership Enigma. Thank you, Adam. Very excited to be here. It is great to see you. I know you're in Canada. That's right at the moment. So grateful for time difference and for making the time certainly to have this conversation. Listen, I did a little bit of an introduction there with some key highlights and that's impressive stuff. But tell the listeners a little bit about your background, because I know we had the conversation prior to this and everyone's got a rich history uh, in relation to where they got and how they got there. But just tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I, I think that this is a fun question when I get asked, because I think the answer is that in hindsight, it looks intentional, but the truth is it's just a long history of saying yes to opportunities <laughs> that came along at the right moment. I love that. And so, you know, sometimes when I get asked for advice, especially for people earlier on in their career, I think that's the best piece of advice that I can give is just be open to opportunities that come along. And that might be something interesting that you might not have intended because really that is the truth of looking back at my history. I had uh, a long path of working in the technology industry. Yep. My background from a, a university perspective is around human computer interaction. And so designing software and understanding how people are going to use it. And I think that led to being maybe compassionate towards users, which has led as a leader to being maybe more compassionate towards team members, which has certainly been helpful. Uh, I've worked in the agency world for a long time and built websites and been a digital agency leader, ultimately ended up at an agency that's uh, based in Canada called Click Health, yep. K-L-I-C-K. Click is now today one of the top commercialization partners for life science companies in the world and works with emerging biotech and pharma companies to launch new drugs and life-saving therapies, which is a, a very rewarding part of the world to work in more so than I think selling breakfast cereal or sneakers, not that there's anything wrong with breakfast cereal and sneakers. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's things, yeah but, selling breakfast cereal or sneakers. <laughs> I'm with right. you. But uh, you know, but it's not the same as helping 
patients who have cancer to find a life-saving therapy that might give them extra years of life uh, or patients with multiple sclerosis to be able to walk better or all of those sorts of things that I had the chance to work on. And Click itself was a pretty, um, is a pretty amazing organization. Today, it's about 1,700 people and growing quickly. When I joined, it was about 130. So I had the chance to be part of the leadership team and part of growing that business from that early stage up through some pretty significant milestones of growth along the way. Right. And also to really absorb a lot of the culture that the leaders of Click had built. Uh, the, the book that you mentioned, The Decoded Company, that we wrote, I co-wrote with two of the founders of Click, Liram Siegel and Aaron Goldstein, and uh, and a friend of ours, Rahaf Harfush, who has spent most of her career understanding how companies grow and how to engage people. She has um, spent some time at the World Economic Forum and doing research for Don Tapscott, uh, who some of your listeners may know for some of the books that he's written. And so it was really kind of a coming together of similar philosophies and similar thinking uh, that, that led us to writing the book. The book was a bit of an experiment on our behalf. A lot of what we do is sort of an experiment. And our hypothesis going into that experiment was if we write the story of how we run this organization and the tools and technologies we've built to really engage our people in doing the best work of their careers, then other people will want to come and work here. And so we wrote the book, came out in 2014. We were kind of right about that hypothesis. There are definitely some people today who work at Click or at Sensei Labs who read the book and then wanted to come and work for us. But the surprising thing that happened is we had a a perfect timing. It was a question of being in the right place at the right time. We wrote a book that brought together big data and talent-centric workplaces at the exact moment where those two topics became really hot topics. And so the book became a New York Times bestseller, which was a fantastic experience. Not a bad experiment, is it? To, uh, to travel around and sort of speak all over the world. Um, you mentioned TEDx. We gave a TEDx talk. We uh, spoke at NASA, which was really, really cool. We got to speak at uh, Harvard Business School, and uh, Google had us out to a bunch of their offices around the world. And, and really a similar experience everywhere we spoke. Afterwards, people came up to us and said, I'd like to use this technology you're talking about. Where can I buy it? And the answer at the time was, you can't. It's a proprietary system we built for ourselves. But, you know, we're entrepreneurs. It didn't take very long for us to say, okay, <laughs> You saw on. an opportunity. Exactly, right? And so we uh, we started thinking about, could we turn this into a platform? And then we got sort of arm twisted into doing that. Uh, a CEO uh, of a company in the U.S. called UWM, United Wholesale Mortgage, today a a multi-billion dollar public company who went public through a SPAC deal uh, in January, 2021. It was actually, and may still be the largest SPAC deal in history. Um, Matt Ishbia, who's the CEO, had seen a demo of our internal platform and he basically forced us to sell it to him. <laughs> he said, uh, either you're going to sell me this thing and I'm going to use it inside of my company, or I'm going to have to build it for myself because nothing like this exists in the market. But if I have to build it myself, then you are no longer allowed to call yourselves entrepreneurs. Okay. And that was, you know, that was the gauntlet. That was sort of the glove slap in the face. And so we said, fine, Matt, we'll sell you this thing. But you have to know, first of all, we have never used this outside of Click. So we have no idea what's going to happen when we do this together. It might be wildly successful. It might be a terrible failure. And he said, I am perfectly okay with that risk. 
In fact, when the history book of Sensei Labs gets written down the road, I want everyone to know we were customer number one. So mm. there you go, Matt. I am publicly proclaiming that you were our first customer for everyone who's listening. And, uh, and then he said, my condition is I want to make sure that as this thing becomes really successful, you're not going to raise the price on me. So I want a 10-year subscription agreement. And so we signed our first customer to a 10-year subscription wow. agreement, which they are still in today. I think they're in year seven. And, um, and that was the beginning of us doing this as a sort of opportunity outside of Click, a little bit of an experiment on the side. And we kept going past them. We added a few more customers. We started a partnership that today is a global partnership with Carney, the management consulting firm, to enable their service delivery around their largest types of programs, transformations, post-merger integrations, uh, procurement and supply chain optimizations. And we got to a scale where it made sense for us to spin this out of click as its own company and to raise a, a series A, which we raised in December, 2020. And so I had the opportunity to leave click as a member of the actual click company, but to remain very much in the click family as the CEO and co-founder of Sensei Labs. And that's what we've been building ever since. Well, there's a great example, isn't it, of uh, sensing, uh, hearing, feeling an opportunity and certainly taking full advantage of it. Jay, I've got a question for you because, yes, you're a tech guy, but I know that you're also passionate about people. I've seen some of your videos, not only your TED Talk, but also we were chatting just before we went on to record, you know, about the video that you've done, which is on the Sensei Labs website. And we'll come back to Sensei Labs. But tell me a little bit about the importance or, or the importance that you you feel for uh, tech and data to really be coupled with human, human behavior. It's, it's not one or the other. They're inextricably linked, aren't they? That tech is helping humanity. Tech, tech is helping people. It's helping talent. Just tell me a little bit about your, your feeling of that and the importance of that uh, collaboration. Really, any technology... Be- can be used for good or for evil. Technology is agnostic as to the outcome. Yep. And so when you look at any company in the world, it's just a collection of people. And so whether we're talking about Meta and f- Facebook and how there are attributes of the Facebook platform that have certainly helped humanity and brought people with similar interests together and uh, and lots of good things, Likewise, there are parts of that that have been very detrimental to humanity and amplified some of our worst tendencies and, you know, misinformation and all of those things. Any piece of technology really has the potential to be used for good or evil. So I think as a whole, technology has helped humanity very much. If you go back and look at the standard of living really anywhere in the world, even places where poverty remains rampant, Mm -hmm. but increasingly we have been able to elevate people out of poverty. And certainly the average standard of living, maybe let's say in the Western world today is so much further advanced than it was because of the presence of technology and everything we do, whether that's life-saving medicines and vaccines, or whether it's just you know electricity and indoor plumbing, which we don't even think of really as technology anymore because they're so prevalent in our lives. So I think fundamentally any technology can be either sort of good or evil or even just sort of neutral. Yeah. The, I think the more specific question you were asking was maybe around how we look at technology as an enabler within an organization to help people within the organization. Yeah. Very people focused. Right. So our perspective is a a company should exist. And we click, we call this the virtual virtuous cycle. Our perspective is a successful company exists in a cycle where 
you hire the best people that you have available. And that question is a very interesting question at this point in history, because the, the COVID push towards hybrid workspaces right. has changed the question of who's available to you for a lot of organizations. It used to be who is within a circle of our office on a map, because those are the people who can come into work. Yep. And it has, if you've adopted this and thought through this, now become who is available around the world who could help us further our mission. That's a much broader talent market than you might've previously looked at, but the goal should still remain, hire the best people who are available. Wherever they and are. If you hire, right, exactly. And if you hire those people and you enable them to build an environment where they can be deeply engaged and do the best work of their careers, then whoever your customers are and whatever your product is, they will be in love with that experience of working with your organization and with using your products. So when we think about product design, we don't stop at the minimum viable product, which right. from a lean startup perspective is the recommended approach. We go one step beyond that to what we call the minimum lovable product. Oh. So sometimes that's just a little bit further, but it's that one feature or that one piece of design, that surprise and delight moment where someone is going to love this rather than just kind of acceptable. Yes, this meets my criteria and I'll use it. If you create that experience for your customers, then they will happily remain your customers and pay you. And in fact, pay you more over time which gives you more funding through which you can create a better environment and allows you sometimes access to a higher level of talent or a more engaged level of talent. And that's the virtuous cycle. So gotcha. if an organization exists to find the best people, create an environment in which they can do their best work, which makes for happy customers who will happily keep paying you and in fact, pay you more, which allows you to invest more in creating that environment, which allows you to hire more people. Technology plays a role in all of that because it enables that cycle to continue to happen. Right. So that was kind of the premise behind Decoded. If you look at something like an e-commerce website, and even something on a, a platform like Shopify, which is an amazing piece of technology, if you're a merchant who wants to sell things online, okay. there are so much analytics built into that to understand your customers. And you think about something like what's attracting customers to the website, which ad campaigns are the most successful in driving them here? Which ones result in them buying more stuff? What items are people lingering on and looking at? Which ones are people ignoring? What's getting added to carts? How do we get people to add more things to carts? Is our checkout process as optimized as possible? So think about all of that ambient data that exists about a business like that. If you run a business like that, you spend a lot of time. You maybe even have a data science team who are going through that. Mm -hmm. You're mining it for insights. You're doing AB split testing on the website. What happens if we move this button over here? How does this increase the average basket size at checkout? We have the same capability in today's modern organizations to do all of that same introspection inwardly looking to understand what engages our team members, what drives them, what they're excited about and passionate about. How do we get them to remain for longer in our organizations, especially in light of the great resignation? Yep. How do we get them to be deeply engaged in their work and to do the best work of their careers? All of that data exists in our organizations, but we don't mine it in the same way that say, we mine, mine the it? data about our customers. Gotcha. And so that was really the, the underlying premise of Decoded. And, and there's a real power there, isn't there, in being able to mine that data 
um, at speed as well. And we're really talking about behaviours as well, aren't we? The behaviours of those uh, internally uh, meeting the needs of the changing, maybe behaviours of the customers as well, and doing it at speed. And really that brings me to maybe the essence of our conversation where we're really talking about the survival of the, the fastest not necessarily the fittest, but the fastest. Now, I know you and I chatted only last week, and I think you said that there's been about 10 years of digital transformation in the scope of two. So tell me a little bit about that, because that that really talks to the the entire ethos of speed, doesn't it? 10 years in two years. Yeah, I I would look at the last two years globally that we've all been through together. Yeah. I say that as though it's done, (laughs) which I think is We just cross our fingers. Right. Well, fingers crossed on, you know, that that we are on the exit side of this pandemic. And depending on where you are in the world today, that is more true or less true. And yes. certainly uh, for, for countries that are going through a wave right now or are suffering, we don't want to make light of that situation. Uh, uh, right now in Canada and particularly Ontario, where we're located, things are actually pretty good. So we are kind of feeling like we're maybe on the exit side of this and yeah. headed towards that side. Um COVID has been a a forcing function in so many ways, in ways that were maybe predictable and in ways that were unpredictable. Certainly, if you go back and look at Bill Gates or Larry Brilliant or other epidemiologists, they have been telling us for years that this is coming. We just don't know when and we don't know which pandemic it's going to be, but there's going to be one. So parts of this were predictable. Yes. And then parts of this were just completely unpredictable, like the impact it had on the global supply chain and the way that it's disrupted supply chains that we would never have anticipated it disrupting and the things that have become difficult to buy at different times. And they say, we we were joking uh, in our pre-conversation around what would happen if you had 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 the foresight to stock a warehouse with the things that were going to become difficult to buy in the correct order. So oh, we've got to, we've got to have this conversation, Jay. I love this question. Let's uh, let's just say that again for our listeners. I do like. Please right. play the play this was, play along it, with this. Right. It was a funny thought exercise. Uh, the the thought exercise was if you had a warehouse, a big empty warehouse at the beginning of COVID, and you had a crystal ball, and you had somehow been able to anticipate <laughs> the order that things were going to become hard to buy in, yep. then the front aisle of your warehouse would have been toilet paper. <laughs> and then you know the next aisle might have been electric razors. Yep. And then the next aisle would have been tops, but not bottoms, because <laughs> nobody was buying bottoms. They didn't need pants but they all needed new tops because we were on Zoom all day. So it was just this funny mental image of this warehouse sort of correctly inventoried in the order that things became hard to buy. I love it. But, you know, now it would be anything with a microprocessor in it because all of, you know, that's become impossible. But then also other things that like, uh, my my partner right now is shopping for a couch and she can't get a couch. They are just impossible to buy anywhere. And so, uh, so a forcing function in the sense that it has put pressure onto systems that we didn't understand were at a pressure point or a breaking point on their own. And it has highlighted in many ways that we had gone down certain paths collectively where we had got to a point where we had uh, gone too far down a particular path, right? So if you think about supply chains, as a broad example, yes. the push over the last decade has been to globalization. It's been to move away from local suppliers in favor of cheaper suppliers that are available maybe across the world. And that was totally fine because we had a global shipping system that was able to keep pace with that demand. But as soon as that broke, it highlighted the fact 
that we are completely dependent on a global supply chain that is very difficult to untangle once you've gone down that road. If you, so, and, and as a mild example, well, actually not a mild example in the sense that lives were at stake, but as a seemingly maybe at the time innocuous example, Canada shut down all of our local vaccine production because there wasn't a need for it. We could rely on global vaccine production. But then you get to a crisis like this and you realize we're now completely dependent on other countries to produce vaccine. If you if you look at what's happening in the energy world right now with Russia having invaded Ukraine, we've it has highlighted the dependence on Russian oil and Russian Mm. natural gas, particularly in Europe and China and other parts of that region, less so in North America because we're a bit removed. But really in many ways, it starts to highlight things like if you actually think about it, much of the global economy for the last few decades has been Russian oil turned into goods and service, goods and products in China shipped around the world through a global supply chain. Right. You start to see that break when things like COVID happen or things like the war in Ukraine happen. So <laughs> that was a long-winded answer. Well, Man, you didn't ask me anything about supply chains. Do, do you know what, Jay? I love this because in some ways, again, I go back to our original conversation. You and I were chatting about black swans, weren't we? And you just alluded to the fact that people were talking about this coming down uh, really the channel. Bill Gates spoke about it quite famously. So maybe the pandemic itself wasn't the black swan, but what we had was a series of knock-on effects that no one yes. expected or anticipated. So maybe the black swans were in the consequential part of the pandemic itself. I don't know. So, and all of this happened at great speed. So we find right. ourselves where we've had um, organizations have had to swivel 180 degrees because of the consequences flowing from yeah, what has I, been a global like pandemic. It's not even 180 degrees. It feels like we've gone around in, in multiple circles and are maybe <laughs> still looking dizzy and not entirely <laughs> sure. Are we facing where we started or are we facing somewhere else? Yeah. I, so, if we stop looking at a macro global scale and we come down to the level of an organization, March, 2020, this started certainly for those of us in North America, we looked at this and said like, ah, whatever, it's a flu. It'll be done in a few weeks. And then, you know, there was that, that one critical day and here we are. The NBA shut down and then Tom Hanks announced that he had COVID. It all happened on the same day. I remember that. Yes. Okay, maybe this is not just, you know, that thing, but it's okay. We'll all go home for a few weeks and then we'll come back to the office. And then as this went longer and longer, it started to highlight those places where we had moved away from first principles of what it means to be an organization and what it means to get work done. And we had layered on top a lot of assumptions that were deep culturally held assumptions about what it means to get work done. Over decades. Over decades, right? And so you know, you can trace back on any one of those. Why do we have a nine to five workday, five days a week? It's actually a lot to do with Henry Ford. He was one of the first originators of that particular construct as a fair work week for the people who worked in his factory. And I'll say the men who worked in his factories, because at the time it was all men. And we don't really realize that we've just kind of continued down that path because he sort of started it and then other people followed along and then that became the assumption. Why are there two days of weekend and five days of work week has nothing to do with those specific days. They're all just days of the week. But those are the places where we have a first principle that we don't realize was a human decision that someone made at some point and it became kind of culturally enshrined. Why do we need to be sitting at a desk in an office so in order to be working? And 
that was true when, you know, maybe you couldn't take your work home. I think about my dad. My dad was a software executive. He, he ran, he founded and ran software companies. And I think about when he used to head out on the road on a business trip with his briefcase. He had like one of those, you know, leather attache case, like the hard briefcase of the it was, 1980s. It was, it was the done thing at that point, Jay. It was, it was, right? But what was in that briefcase? It was a lot of paper. And, an, you know, and maybe the, the book he was reading at the time, right? Pen, he didn't have a, a calculator. Laptop. He, right, exactly. He probably had a calculator. <laughs> there were probably a few pens and, you know, you'd head out on the road, right? And and there was only kind of a limited amount of work you could get done it, because it was sort of what was in the case yeah. or you could maybe spend some time thinking about bigger problems or that kind of thing. There was inherently a need to be at your desk in order to get work done yeah. and to collaborate with the other people on your to team. Connect. Sure. And so we get to something like COVID and we realize because we have no choice that actually it's totally fine for us to go home and work from home. We have the technologies today so that you and I can do this as a perfectly, you know, well-recorded sound quality and video quality call from two completely different countries. We have all that infrastructure is in place. If this pandemic had happened five years before, we wouldn't have had the ability to do that. This would have been a lot harder because all those Zoom calls that got us all through this, where we were on mm -hmm. with friends and family, and maybe they weren't ideal at all, and we didn't want to be doing them. We wanted to be in a room together, but at least we could. We wouldn't have been able to do that if it had been five years prior to when it happened. And five years is not long ago, Jay. No, not at all. No. Uh, but... The, the question of the 10 years of adoption and transformation, yep. it's an estimate, obviously. But to say that the entire world is going to go from, you and I were both frequent travelers. We've chatted about that, right? There was many, many times in my career where I've been on a flight several times a week flying out to visit somebody. I have done the flying to Europe for a one-hour meeting a few times you know, all of that in retrospect looks kind of ridiculous yeah, now that bonkers. we know that we could not do it. And it doesn't mean that it's all going to go away. There will be times where that face-to-face -face is really important. Mm -hmm. But so much of that, if you had said in February 2020, in a month from now, you will have let go of all of that and adopted broadly these new technologies, I would have said you were crazy. I think everybody would have said you were crazy. And that's what I mean by this forcing function that forced us to adopt that. Now, survival of the fastest, though, is different okay. because there are still people today, as we are emerging from COVID, there are lots of leaders out there. They're probably not listening to this podcast, to be honest, but there are lots of leaders out there. Well, they who are should thinking, be. Oh, well, they should be. They should <laughs> actually. They should be. Adam, everybody should be listening to this podcast. The problem is that the you know people who are interested in this topic already understand this, and the people who aren't listening to this podcast because they don't pay attention to this, their perspective of this is, oh, good, we're coming out of this. We can go back to everyone at their desk nine to five, and we can stop using all this video conferencing stuff. Go back to normal. Want everybody in a room together. Yeah. And that is where those organizations are going to fail, because the forcing function takes us out to things like the Great Resignation. This is a, an opportunity for people to say, I've reevaluated what's important in my life. And I don't want to work in an organization that doesn't care about me and doesn't respect me anymore. And I want challenge and I want growth and I want 
to get paid a reasonable wage for the work that I do. And I've realized maybe that it doesn't matter where that company is. So, you know, maybe I actually can move. I, I, I live in Toronto. Um, for your listeners who aren't as familiar with Toronto, it is a, a now a very big city. We're the fourth largest city in North America now. Right. It is growing faster than any other city in North America. And it has become a place where home ownership is just not realistic if you're coming into the market today, much like New York has been for many, many years. Right. If you are coming out of university now and you're starting your first job, you are going to be a renter for the rest of your life in Toronto. It's just become that kind of real estate market. But one of the things that this has forced is, oh, maybe I don't need to live in the city anymore. Mm. I would have lived here because that's where work was, but maybe that actually doesn't matter. And maybe I can move to one of the communities around Toronto where I'm still close enough that I can come into the city, but I can actually buy a house with a backyard and not spend millions of dollars on buying that house. I think we're getting closer and closer to the average price of a detached home in Toronto is closing in on $2 million. Wow. That's just unattainable for most people. I worry about so, our kids. Right. Well, and I think it's just a shift. If you live in New York, you never thought you were going to own a place anyway. It was just a renter's market. That's just the way it has been for decades in New York. I think we're getting to a similar place here. Again, that was a that was a very long answer to your question, but I think the forcing function of COVID has forced technology adoption. It's forced a rethink of first principles and fundamental assumptions about what work is. Why do we have offices? Yep. Why do we force people to come into them? What does it mean to be engaged in the work that you do? How do we service customers? How do we hire on a global basis has become a question I think lots of smaller companies wouldn't have broached at all, maybe, maybe ever, no, because they wouldn't have scaled to the point where they thought that was realistic. But we've seen a huge growth in the segment of the market known as employer of record, which is these companies that provide hiring services around the world. And so you can hire an employer of record and say, I'm a, uh, I'll use our example, I'm mm -hmm. a Canadian company, but I really want to hire a bunch of people in uh, Asian countries where we have customers. So for example, Singapore or Indonesia for us, yeah. we would like to put people on the ground there. And so you can hire an employer of record and they will handle all of the legals, the paperwork, the benefits, the taxes, right. all of that stuff for a small fee. Obviously they don't, it's not a charity, but, uh, but that makes it, that makes it entirely realistic for us to say, all right, let's just go hire some people in the, in another part of the world and not have to worry about all of that infrastructure so I, I love this phrase you've used as well that covid essentially was you talked about forcing function it was a forcing function of in some ways breaking the myths and the ways of working that we were very used to for, for many years for decades jay let me ask you this question were we sleepwalking before covid in some ways as leaders and organizations and we were going through periods of growth and we were going through economic downtime but were we sleepwalking in essence and just some of the things that we were doing some of the ways that we were working that's a good question. I don't know if we were sleepwalking or if you think of culture yep. as a shared set of values and assumptions, yep. we had a culture in which we had a shared set of values and assumptions, and some of them were just wrong. And it's not that they had always been wrong, but the world had changed without us necessarily updating them and rethinking we them. fast enough. Yeah, well, and I, I, exactly. And I think it's hard sometimes to see those places where something feels like a law of physics, but is actually just an assumption. Right. 
And so, you know, like gravity is a law of physics. There's not much we can do about it. Gravity is thankfully going to hold us on the planet, but it's hard to say like, you know, I think we should just let go of gravity. Maybe it's not so useful anymore. But what also felt a bit like a law of physics, you need to be in the office in order yeah. to get work done. And, you know, turns out not to be so true. And so there have much. been maverick organizations out there for years that have been touting remote work. Um, great example in the tech sector is a company called Automatic, which make WordPress. So if you have ever read a blog, yes. there's a strong chance that it was running on WordPress gotcha. as a platform. Yep. And Automatic for years has been touting, you can have a completely remote first workforce and there's lots of technology that enable this and make it possible. I think that's more true in a pure technology company than it has been in other companies. But what COVID has shown us is that thing that felt like a law of physics really was just an assumption. Right. I think that's important. Let me, let me start to bring this back to the individual leader level. You know, as people are listening to this episode, they may well be uh, leaders who are just starting out, entrepreneurs and, and maybe the disruptors of tomorrow or those in, in small or medium-sized companies and also those monolithic and iconic brands that, that we, we know. And so help me kind of the discussion, what do leaders need to be thinking about? What capabilities do they need to be evidencing when everything is just so fast? You know, when we talk about the survival of the fastest, what are we talking about from an individual leader perspective, Jay? The most valuable skills that you can build, and they are buildable, but yep. it does take some work, are resilience and the ability to operate in ambiguity. As a leader for the last two years, and I think this is probably true regardless of the size of your team, but it's probably more true at the top of an organization, not necessarily a big one. Yep. But the questions that I've had, we're about 85 people today. We were about 50 or so when we were in the beginning of COVID. Right. And so we've grown quite a lot over this time. But a lot of our team has looked to us as leaders to answer questions about what was happening with the pandemic. I'm not an epidemiologist. I mean, I think we've all become armchair epidemiologists over the last <laughs> yeah, few years, true. but I'm not a qualified epidemiologist at all. And so those are difficult questions, but the team is scared and they're uncertain about how the world is going. And they naturally look to someone like their boss or their leaders of their organization to help them develop some certainty in there. And one of the hardest things to do as a leader is to say, I don't know. Right. And to be okay with that as an answer. Comfortable. Comfortable with that, right? Co exactly. Comfortable in that state of ambiguity and uncertainty to say, I don't actually know the answer to that question, but I will work on this with you and figure out what the answer to it is, is a difficult thing. It's uh, the, 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 the short form that some of your listeners may have come across VUCA, yeah. which is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yes. That has become standard operating procedure at this point in the world. I think we would all love to go back to precedented times because we've been living in <laughs> unprecedented yeah. times. We're not allowed to use that word anymore, are we? Unprecedented. No, okay. I think the politicians yeah, know, may have overused it. I, I, absolutely. I, but, it, but they're not wrong. This is in many ways unprecedented times. And so what does this mean for leaders? I think uh, a, a few thoughts here. One is you have to be okay with the fact that this is going to be an, a VUCA world maybe forever. Yep. Maybe that's just the new state that we live in. Agreed. And so there are 
some skills you can work on and and develop there around being comfortable with that and being able to say that you're comfortable with it. But also, how do you make decisions in that world? A lot of people's decision-making frameworks are, let's be thorough and complete and and assess all of the relevant data and then make a decision. Yeah, impossible. You can't do that anymore. That is contrary to survival of the fastest. We just don't have time to do that. You will have to make decisions based on incomplete information. Yeah. Um, it's my, it's my favorite. Uh, there are two kinds of people in this world joke. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who can extrapolate from incomplete information. That's the end of the joke. Ta-da. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, be one of, become one of those people who can extrapolate from incomplete information. Cause you're not going to go back to yeah. a state of certainty. So that's part of the answer. I think that's true for all of us, though. I don't think that's just true for leaders. Yeah. And, yeah. and the useful tool there, two, two really quick useful tools there. One is separate decisions that are one-way doors from two-way doors. So a decision that's reversible is a two-way door. You can go through that door, okay. but you can also come back through the door on the other side. It doesn't lock behind you when you've gone through it. There are actually not very many irreversible decisions in life and in the workplace and so if you're faced with a decision that's truly irreversible, then make it slowly and carefully because you're going to have to live with whatever the circumstances of it are. Gotcha. Okay. As an example, as a leader, it might be something like signing a multi-year lease on office space, which is a very pressing question right now as yeah. people are considering a return to work. You can't get out of that lease very easily. It's going to be a significant line item out of your budget for the next few years. Make okay. that decision slowly. Gotcha. A question of hiring somebody is a little bit more reversible. You can get out of that decision if it's wrong. Don't linger and wait for ages and try to make a complete decision on that. So that's one useful tool. The other one is a question that we ask ourselves at Sensei Labs all the time when we're trying to make a decision. And the question is, is this safe to try? And the reason it's an important question is it inverts the typical direction that most organizations go in. Most of the time when you're faced with an important decision in an in a more traditional organization, there's a lot of what we might call stop energy against making that. Right. It is often the case that the organization will reject change because people are scared of their own jobs or they're, yeah. they think that this might not be personally good for them or good for their department. We think of it in a way as sort of antibodies in an organization that descend on and attack the change to reject it almost um, in the same way that your body would attack a, an infection or something like that. Asking that question, it's deceptively simple. It inverts that to, unless anyone can think of a reason why this isn't safe to try, we're going to go ahead with this as an experiment. Right. And so you can no longer object out of a feeling of, I think this threatens my job. You, If you have a legitimate reason, safe in the physical harm sense that this might actually be dangerous for people or safe in the sense of we might lose our biggest customer or this puts $10 million of revenue at risk. Those are our, our real safety considerations. Yes. But unless you can come up with one, we're going to go ahead with this thing by default rather than we're not going to go ahead with it by default. So in a, in a VUCA world, that is actually quite a useful tool for getting to those decisions. See, I love, I love all these episodes. You can see me feverishly writing notes as we go. Uh, Jay, because I actually love those uh, those two two tools that we've kind of uh, almost finished up. Uh, I think on a, on on a great place because I know we're scratching the surface. Uh, I could chat to you for absolutely ages, which would be desperately unfair on you. So, how can people get in touch to can, uh, carry on the conversation, dig a little deeper, uh, get you involved in some of the challenges that they're working through as a leader or an organization? Best way. Yeah, you 
by all means, visit our website, senseilabs.com. Yep. You can find us also on LinkedIn and your other favorite social platforms. You can find me on all of those places at Jay Goldman, J-A-Y, uh, on pretty much every social platform that's out there. And certainly on LinkedIn, feel free to just reach out on Twitter or LinkedIn and send me a message. Be happy to continue this conversation or hear what's been interesting for you. And certainly if you are a, a larger organization looking for a platform to manage your transformations on or orchestrate some of your larger programs, we'd love to chat about whether Conductor might be a good fit for you. Great. Well, that's uh, uh, loads of ways there to get in touch with you. And I know for a fact that we've we've already had uh, listeners reaching out to some of our guests. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Got a, a final question for you. Uh, this is interesting because I'm going to compare and contrast this because I know you've been asked this before. What's kind of the, the, mo- the most impactful piece of leadership advice that you've received or given i think that the the clearest leadership advice that i've received which i have then given many times comes back to that virtuous cycle that we talked about earlier the most important thing you can do as a leader is to consider who you hire who you promote and who you fire and that set of decisions that you have to make are the critical ones that you make as a leader of any size of team If you relax your standards on hiring, you will put the wrong people on the team. The fastest way to alienate your top talent is to tolerate your worst talent. Yeah. And so hiring the wrong people sets you up for that exact problem. Who you promote is significant in your team because they are the leaders of tomorrow, but also the rest of the team is paying attention to the behaviors that got them rewarded. And so promoting people, even a title change promotion that doesn't actually change scope of responsibility. Sometimes we give those out as a way to placate somebody that might be problematic otherwise, but that has cultural implications if we're not careful with it. And then the decision about who you fire, which is an unfortunate decision that we all have to make as leaders, but it is an incredibly important one. And tolerating underperformers on your team is like allowing a cancer to grow inside of your organization. And the rest of your team is paying attention to whether you tolerate that behavior or whether you don't. And as I said, the fastest way to alienate your top performers is to tolerate your bottom ones. The top performers are looking at that and saying, well, if those people don't have to work hard, then why do I have to work hard? Or I don't want to work in an organization where I'm not surrounded with people who inspire me and help me to grow. So my advice, the single best piece of advice I've ever been given and pass on is as a leader, people is the only thing you really need to get right. Everything else will follow. And that really comes down to those three critical decisions about who you hire, promote and fire. And those critical decisions, Jay, a leader can still really look through that lens of a very human centered approach. Even if you're making quite a difficult decision and letting someone go, you can still be very human centered about it, can't you? Oh, absolutely. This isn't a mercenary economic decision. There are some roles where that's more clear. Sales, for example, is just one of those roles where if you're not performing, it's an economic consideration and it's very easy to tell who's not performing. But at the same time, uh, like we have a very strong rule about no assholes. And so you could be a top performer, but if you are a jerk to everybody around you, you will not survive in our organization. That is a humane decision for the rest of the team. And maybe at the expense from a purely economic uh, output perspective to the organization, but critically, it's a really important one. I think of our culture as very intentional. Um, the, the, The third 
uh, decoded principle in the book is called engineered ecosystems. This is really the idea that you can be intentional about engineering the ecosystem of your environment. And I think of our culture as something that we are very intentional about. And we think of the, probably the best analogy is that we are gardeners of our culture and it's our job is as the people who tend that garden to make sure that it gets enough sunlight and water and nutrients and that we weed out the weeds that we don't want growing there. But ultimately, the culture will grow on its own in its own direction. And we can shape and influence that. But we are not managers of that culture. We can't dictate how that's going to go. We can just make sure it has the right conditions. And the biggest decision in that is who we hire, promote, and fire. Yeah, very much. You are, in some ways, the... the uh you're right. I like the word gardeners, actually. I, I was thinking of a, a better way of describing it, but I think uh, I like that. You are indeed that, that gardener of the culture. And it really is the culture, isn't it, that's going to be such uh, a, a magnet for attracting and retaining talent when the world is slightly bonkers. So that's great advice to finish up this episode. Jay, I just want to say a massive thank you to you for being part and parcel of the Leadership Enigma. I hope you've had fun. Very much. And I hope you'll come back to us again and tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it when we are out of this pesky pandemic. What do you reckon? Will you do that for us? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure to come back. Thanks for being a great star. Join us again next week for more tips and strategies on the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with your host on LinkedIn or our YouTube channel. And remember to get your daily learning to build success at www.insights.emeritus.org. Download the Insights app and start learning for free. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.